Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We pray that you are blessed by the sharing of God's truth for us this day. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Take out your copy of God's Word with me and turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. You all know this story. And my prayer is that, as always, as we break the bread of life together, that there's something that I can share with you that either stretches you, helps you to grow, or nourishes you. I have a bad habit when I try to do stuff like this of... Um, misspeaking. I remember, for instance, um, I think it was the past Wednesday night study, I was talking about the different books of the Bible and the different letters within the New Testament. And I said uh, that there were three Johns, which is perfectly true. And I think I accidentally also said there were three, um, first, second, third John, first Peter, second Peter. I accidentally said that there were three Peters. And I know that I have a bad habit when I try to do this kind of uh, improvisational speaking, so to speak, that, that, like I just did, open mouth, insert foot. And we're about to talk about one of the disciples that made a ministry of open mouth, insert foot. <laughs> I think all of us can identify with that. How many of us have not, at some point in time, meant to say something... And you open your mouth, and as you drew breath and started to exhale whatever it was you were going to say, the second it left your lips, you knew it was, had nothing to do with what your brain had intended for you to say. I think all of us have been there and lived to regret it. Especially when it's, it, it involves a first impression. In fact, if you'll recall, I was in such terror of it during my first few years of ministry that any time I got up here to speak, I'd never... Uh, I always spoke from a manuscript. I would write out my sermons to make sure that every word was measured exactly so. Trying to keep things as precise as possible and around 30 minutes. And the more and more I got to, to, to speaking on this, the more I left the page and started improvising and started adding other things that the Holy Spirit laid on my heart for you while I was preaching. And finally, one of you uh, went up to me and said, and I'm not making this up. I love your sermons, but could you just preach? So I've been doing it ever since. And thankfully, God, for the most part, have kept my verbal flubs to a minimum. And I thank him for that. But I am not, <laughs> I am anything but inerrant. Fortunately, I serve a God who is. And fortunately, I serve and I learn the Word of God that is likewise perfect. So, Luke chapter 9, starting with verse 18. Luke 9, 18. If you're there, say amen. amen. Once when Jesus was praying in private and His disciples were with Him, He asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, 
and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. So he's giving the same response from his disciples that Herod got from his spies. He's giving pretty much the exact same information. But here's the key question for the passage. What about you, he asked? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Now in another passage of Scripture, I believe it's in the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew pins a different reply. He says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Two different ways of pinning the same thing. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And He said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So He's giving them in advance what is going to happen. Then He said to them all, Whoever wants to be My disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow Me. Please I know that you've heard that preach probably your entire lives, but please take a moment right now. Take out your highlighters, your ink pens, well, not your ink pens, your pencils, and underline that passage. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily. This is not a Jewish way of speaking. This because of the Roman Empire, this is very much an international thought. Crucifixion had been around at this time for generations. In fact, the Persians invented it by crucifying people on an X-shaped cross. They would just string them up and hold them like this until they suffocated and died of exposure. A very public display, a very public shame. So what Jesus is saying to the disciples is not just to His Jewish disciples in His immediate midst. It's everybody that would hear His message in the generations to come. As the Word of God traveled from Jerusalem to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, everybody who heard these words understood that what Jesus is saying is that in order to follow Him, you have to put yourself in second place. To the point that you're going to carry a burden that very, very, may very well bring you into disfavor with the world around you. Cursed is he that hangeth upon a tree. You must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me daily. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their very self? To lose their own soul. Is your life really worth it? Is your ambition really worth it? Is your need, your hunger, your thirst after the things of this world, after money, after wealth, after possessions, after property, after recognition, after power, is it all worth it if it means that your immortal, eternal existence ends up suffering because of it. What profit is... Profiteth, I've learned it in the King James and it, it doesn't come as naturally anymore. Why does it profit you to gain the possession of the whole world if you lose your soul to hell in the process? If your eternity has to suffer. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words 
the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in the glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. In fact, in their midst they've already seen it. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word this morning. What we see here is a multitude of different things being taught all at once. First of all, Peter, who ordinarily couldn't string three words together in a way that, that actually amounted to the truth, at least the truth to suit his teacher, suddenly gives us a profound insight that was hidden to everybody else. In fact, Jesus himself, again, I believe in Matthew's gospel, would say that flesh and blood didn't reveal these things to you. In other words, this wasn't something that human thought caused you to recognize, but it was the Spirit of God working within you that brought you to the realization that He is the one who was promised from ages past. Now we have the question, who is He? Every day that you live, every moment that you have on this earth is a way that God asks you, do you trust me? Every choice that you have to make, is it through your wisdom or through His? Is it through His Lordship in your life or through your will to get what you want to get accomplished, accomplished? Jesus is asking us, or is telling us rather, that if we are to be truly His disciples, we have to abandon the things that we consider to be wise. And we must always surrender ourselves to His will in order for what, in order for His will to be accomplished. If this church is going to prosper, if Christianity is going to long endure, the only way that that can happen is if the church surrenders its will to its Lord. Who do you say that I am? I'm going to talk for a little bit about who Jesus is in reality. Whether we believe it or not, who is Jesus in history versus who is Jesus spiritually. The truth of the matter is there isn't a difference. C.S. Lewis came up with this logical progression of thought. Well, actually he promoted it. He said that Jesus is one of three things. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. Meaning that he has to be the greatest con man in the first instance that ever lived. Right now there are two billion people in the world that call themselves the disciples of Christ. So either 12 people spread a lie, gave their lives, sacrificed themselves, died themselves. Peter, the apostle that I was just picking on, was hung upside down on a cross. Either this person, this historical figure, was the greatest con man to ever live, or he was a lunatic. He thought he was God, but he actually wasn't. He suffered from a delusional state of thinking, a grandiose idea of what the Messiah was. Because remember, in this mindset, the Jews weren't looking for a son of God. They were looking for another David. They were looking for another king that would come up, a military power, who would also seize control of the, 
the temple and allow everything to come under his banner so that Israel would have its own kingdom again. They were looking for an anointed human being, a person that was still fallen, feeble, fickle, finite, and all the rest, but a person nonetheless who wasn't God. And yet in God's plan, God wanted someone in that office to also be perfect. God wanted someone to live a sinless life. God wanted someone who wasn't born out of sin, but born through an immaculate process. He wanted himself. He wanted his own son. This wasn't somebody that the Jews were expecting. So he was a liar or a tick. And in one passage from uh, somebody else that I came across as I was preparing this message, there are those that say that he was a legend. In other words, that, uh, that he was just a historic feature, he, a teacher. He was a rabbi that uh, his disciples actually turned into somebody, puffed this person up, and promoted them as something that he really wasn't. He wasn't God, but he was advertised by his disciples as God. A historic figure that literature has misinterpreted. But if that's the case, who would gladly walk into the arena and face down the lions or be put on a Soviet ice floe for a lie? I mean, if you press somebody hard enough, they're going to cave in. How many of the disciples let go of their faith before the end? How many times do we hear, like, the, uh, like those in Russia during the Soviet Revolution that I alluded to, um, that we hear stories about those that were martyred for the faith of today. But this is the world trying to convince us that our faith is false. This is the world throwing things in our faith to try to pollute and delude who we are. There are actually seminarians out there who don't believe in the Word of God, who think of this as a, a, an exercise in literature, who are not professing Christians, and yet they're being trained to become pastors. People who buy into the lie, promote it from the pulpit, and have not only doubts festering in their hearts about the validity of the Word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the integrity of the church, but also preach it to those who are sitting in their midst, who try to take down the body of Christ from the inside by promoting a cancer. C.S. Lewis, who I talked about a little bit ago when he was confronting this idea of, of Christ being someone that the, the apostles just kind of puffed up to make themselves look bigger, he said this, it's very odd that this horrible invention about a religious leader should grow among the people, the one people in the whole earth least likely to make such a mistake. The Jews believe in only one God. The Jews have no conception of a God who has children. To the Jews, for somebody to insinuate that they're on the same level as God meant instant death by stoning. He goes on, on the contrary, we get the impression that none of his immediate followers or even the New Testament writers embraced the doctrine at all easily. It had to take root in their hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit in order for it to become a reality, to become a truth in their eyes. This is one example that John records for us. My sheep, and this is also one of the, the passages in Scripture that you want to mark down if anyone is trying to argue with you that someone can be saved and then lose their salvation. But I want you to pay attention to, to what Jesus himself says and then what happens in the culture of the day around him. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch him from my Father's hand. The giving him and the receiving him together, you can't jump out. You can't leave. He who has begun a good work into you, he will draw it into completion. God saved you. God redeemed you. God empowered you. He's not going to let you go. And then Jesus gives this testimony of himself, who he is before his disciples. I and the Father are, say it with me, one. There are those that argue, even in seminaries, that this is not the case, that this is John being fanciful, but this is how the Jews that were surrounding him, even his own, not his inner disciples, but those that were following around in the crowds, this is how they reacted to that phrase from him. His Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, Have I shown you, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you, they replied. For any good work, they, but for blasphemies, because you, a mere man, claimed a what? They even knew it. The people listening to him knew that he was claiming to be God. The Father and the Son are one. So for him to be puffed up as a legend doesn't make sense. For him to be a liar and that lie endure 2,000 years and take its place among the most prosperous religions on the face of the planet. Granted, we're not the majority, but we're still strong. For this many people to believe such a lie doesn't make any sense either. But Lewis put it this way in the thinking that only he's capable of doing he either knew that he, he, he either was God or he wasn't God. And he either knew that fact or he didn't know that fact. And if he knew that he wasn't God, then we would call him a what? A liar. If he, didn't, if he wasn't God and he didn't know that he wasn't God, then we'd call him a what? A lunatic, a crazy person. You, it's not possible that he didn't know that he was God and still be God. You can't be omniscient and not be omniscient. Paul writes about this. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For I, what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he also appeared to Cephas, meaning the apostle Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So what he's saying is, if you don't believe me, there are over 500 people in Palestine right now that you can go to and interview. In fact, he sent... Luke, his own disciple, to do that very thing in the book that we're now examining. If you don't believe me, you've got more than 500 eyewitnesses. And then in the book of the Acts, you see that more than several thousand people 
Several thousand Jews turned their hearts to Christ. So if he wasn't a liar and he wasn't a lunatic, then he had to be one thing. And what is that? Jesus Christ is Lord. There is no other option. This is the foundation on which we have a profession of faith. Now, I hate to say this, but there are many Baptists out there that don't know what those words mean. So I'm going to give it to you in brief. Because if you don't understand this, this is something that every disciple needs to understand so that they can be the carriers of that faith and understand why it is that we do what we do. Why do we have an invitation? Why at the end of every service do we have a slow song that tells us about a Jesus who is there willing with open arms to save? This is why. It begins with a key question. Please write this down in your notes. It begins with a key question. And most of you actually heard me teach a lot of this beforehand, but that key question is that you have to answer and that someone that you're talking about this stuff with has to answer. What in your personal opinion, what in your personal opinion does it take for a person to have eternal life? What, in your personal opinion, does it take for, a person, for someone to have eternal life? And through the course of that, these questions need to be answered. And I know that this stuff is going to come at you rapidly. Feel free to actually take pictures of this if you want. Because this is important. In fact, this is vital. Why do we need faith in the first place? What is the substance of our faith? When we say that we made a profession of faith, what in the world does that even mean? Why is a profession of faith important? We as Baptists are picked on because we insist on having a time of invitation or what other denominations would call an altar call. Why is that even important? What is the scope of that profession? What does it impact within us once we make it? So why is faith important? What composes that profession of faith? Why is that public profession important in the first place? And does it just stop when someone says something in front of a church? Paul writes to us in the book of Romans, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. This is Romans 3, 22 through 24. Romans 3, 22 through 24. To all who believe, there is no difference between Jew or Gentile. For all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. That's me. That's every pastor I've ever had. That's every teacher I've ever been under. That's every professor that I've ever had. That's every saint that I've ever known. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every human who has ever lived have a black stain of sin on their lives. From the moment that we come to the knowledge of good and evil, we pick the wrong every time. That's human nature. That's a genetic curse that's been on us from the beginning. One that we put on ourselves. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by His grace. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, whoever believes in Him, this is the voice of Jesus Himself, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. 
John 3.18. But whoever does not believe stands what? Condemned already. So here we're starting to see faith versus non-faith. If you have that stain of sin, we, we, we have this bad habit of thinking that I've done something wrong in my life and I need God's forgiveness for it. And while that's perfectly true of all of us, that conjures up this, this fallibility argument that if I just do enough good things in my own sight, it will balance out the scales. It's not about balancing scales. It's a stain on your life that you can't wash away. No good work can make up for that stain. It can't be cleansed by you. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. That's the only thing that can wash away the stain. Works can't do it. It's belief. It's acceptance. They have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So they stand condemned already. They stand condemned already. He doesn't have to bring them up and give them the charge, even though he will. They are already condemned. There is none righteous, no, not one. The wages of sin is, there's only one penalty. It doesn't have degrees. There are no circles in hell. There's only one bottomless pit. We talked about that before, so I'll spare you. But there are no degrees of punishment. It's the same thing for all. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is everlasting life. I tell you, but unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. So what does that mean? We have all sinned. We all require God's forgiveness. But forgiveness isn't just about going to God and asking for it. It's about repenting. It's about turning away from the thing that causes your sin in the first place. And that's a focus on self. When Adam and Eve were both in the Garden of Eden, they were tempted not because they wanted another piece of fruit that they've never had before, but because they wanted to be gods in their own eyes. They wanted that same power. They wanted that same status. They wanted themselves to be lifted over the Almighty. That is the foundation of sin. It's pride. So the prerequisite for forgiveness other than excuse me, the prerequisite for forgiveness is turning away from focusing on oneself and turning to focus on Christ and Christ alone. Unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And the world doesn't believe that today because they think we're all perfect. You're good just the way you are. In fact, your physical reality doesn't matter. If you don't like yourself, we'll just alter it. Be the person that you imagine yourself to be. It doesn't work that way, folks. It doesn't work that way. For by grace have you been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In other words, the profession of faith, first thing that we have to do if we're talking to someone is talk about the need for faith in the first place. Everyone is sinned. All stand condemned before God under their own righteousness because guess what? We don't have righteousness in the human condition. The only way that we can have it is if somebody credits it to our account from another source that's outside of us. All need forgiveness. Every person, human being who has ever lived saved only one and he just happened to be the son of God. Forgiveness requires repentance. Even in person-to-person relationships. If somebody beats you up, 
says I'm sorry, and then beats you up again, are they really sorry? No. Forgiveness requires repentance. So what else can we learn? Forgiveness is available. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the foundation of the gospel. When we, we all need it, and it's there for us. Apostle Paul continues on, I passed on to you this most important thing, what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried. In other words, He, he was dead. His life was completely given. And by the power of God, the fact that He had no sin on Him, death could not hold Him. The grave could not keep him. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas in the twelve. So this is the substance, the confession, which is our profession. When someone comes before the altar, this is the substance. We all have sinned and need forgiveness. God forgive me a, a sinner. And we believe, just as Peter confessed, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the perfect one. That Jesus suffered death to pay for my sin, a debt that I could not pay myself. That His death was the death that I should have had, the death that I earned, the death that I owed. It is the wages of my sin. And I didn't have to take it because he took it for me. Jesus was resurrected. The sinless son of God defeated death. And because he is risen, guess what? We will too. If we are trusting in the Lord. If you declare with your mouth the Lord Jesus. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You what? you will be saved. This is why a profession of faith, this is why the public profession of faith, please get these Bible references down. This is why the invitation is a vital part of the service. With the mouth, excuse me, with the heart, you believe and are justified. With your mouth, you profess your faith and are saved. That's why we take that time after every service. That's the reason why the music is centered about the sacrifice of Christ and our need for it. Declare with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And these are the words of Jesus himself. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But read this next passage with me, church. But whoever disowns me before others, I will what? I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Imagine being in heaven one day. For those who are afraid to admit that they are Christian by their deeds or by their words, and the Savior himself, yet they claim a church membership somewhere. 
And yet the Savior, once they're trying to get into heaven, they don't understand what's the problem. And Jesus has to confess before his Father as the star witness. I'm ashamed of him. I'm ashamed of her. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never, what? Knew you. A profession of faith is the outpouring of a saving faith. It is a physical reality of something that's transformed you from the inside. And if it's transformed you from the inside, then that transformation should include the ability to at least stand and acknowledge that you've made this decision for Christ. It is a required, as we've just read in the black and white of Scripture, it is a required first step in having a relationship with God. And it is the beginning of our relationship. If we are in sin, then we have separated ourselves from God's presence. It's that simple. Sin cannot enter into the presence of God. Therefore, if you have that blot of sin upon your life, you cannot meet with Him. He cannot, He will not hear you unless you are calling to Him for salvation. It's the beginning of your relationship with God. And it is a required spiritual discipline of all of us. It is, in fact, commanded in Scripture. 1 Peter 3.13, it is something that we not only do when we come before the altar and ask for God's forgiveness, but it is also something that we should practice and practice and practice in word, in deed, and not have fear about it. Because God Himself assumes the responsibility for you carrying out His commandments. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? From the Apostle Peter himself. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. But in your hearts regard Jesus Christ as Lord, as holy. Be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have. Be always ready to give an account of your hope. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. Devil loves pendulum swings. He either wants Christians that are so far to the left that they're afraid to admit that they're Christians in the first place. Or he wants them so far to the right that they turn violent and are discredited before everybody else, losing their testimony. All things in moderation. Do this with gentleness and with deep respect. They will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The integrity of the Christian message. Are we bold enough to proclaim it? Are we strong enough to live as Christ would have us to live? The brother of Christ writes this to us under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit of God. My dear brothers and sisters,
Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I get picked on because I use so much Holy Scripture as part of my messages. I didn't know that was a problem. My whole point in ministry is to get out of the way of the Word of God and let it speak. The reason that I want you to delve into God's Word so often is you can make it part of yourselves. Be ye doers of the Word and not hearers only. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, this is the law of grace in other words, and continues in it not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Note that down as a memory verse. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So James is telling us, be careful when you have dealings with other people that claim to be of like faith, and yet they don't demonstrate it. Those who consider themselves religious and yet they do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, let's call that not just their speech, but their conduct, their conversation, and their character. Who they are in all reality, what they speak, and even who they are in their heads. Their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and as faultless as this. Look after the orphans and widows in their distress. Keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Live the way Christ lived. It's that simple. It's not the pendulum swing that the world wants you to, th the, the enemy wants you to think. It's not the tunnel vision that we seem to keep living in right now. It's not, do we love other people even though they're not like us, that they don't go to the same church that we do, that they, they have these other faults in their lives? Yes, we do that. We help people in need because that's what Christ did. The physician doesn't go to well people, he goes to the sick. But at the same time, as we just heard in Peter, not only do we do the good works to, to, to proclaim the love of Christ, we also explain the love of Christ. Be always ready. When anyone asks, be always ready to give an account of the joy that is within you. And what did we hear from the voice of Jesus just a couple of passages ago? If anyone admits me before others, I will admit them before God, the Father. But if anyone disowns me, shuts their trap and doesn't say anything when they're asked or denies me before others, then I will deny them.
don't divorce ourselves from our faith. We profess our faith. The integrity of the Christian message is this. The gospel that we believe. Confession, repentance, and acceptance of Him as Lord. Not as our ATM machine in the sky, not as our hellfire insurance. Lord, Master, Governor of all. The gospel that we profess, mercy and evangelism. Not divorcing ourselves from the two sides of the message that we are called to proclaim. Know Christ and make Christ known. The gospel that we live, this is what I meant by scope. Be hearers of the word, be doers of the word, excuse me, and not hearers only. Don't just come to these services because it's what you do Sunday after Sunday. Learn something from it. Take notes, meditate on God's word, make it part of your life. Live it out. And when you're asked, speak it. Control yourselves through the giftedness that you've been blessed with through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Love, joy, peace, goodness, faithfulness, temperance, forbearance, self-control. The gospel we live through our conduct, our conversation, and our character. The gospel we believe, the gospel we profess, the gospel that we live. This is how we raise Christ up. He has been glorified by the Father. He was proclaimed 2,000 years by the giants on whose shoulders that we stand. We've inherited their ministry of reconciliation. And this is what that ministry of reconciliation is. We love everybody just as Christ would have loved them. We love God the Father above all. And we love one another just as our Savior loves us. And all God's people said, and Heavenly Father, as we come again boldly before your throne of grace, we make this petition. Lord, that you would see fit to continue to embolden us to proclaim your gospel and to live it out. That if there is anything that we have held back from you, Lord, that you would wrench it away from us. That you would forgive us. That you would lead us to repentance, Lord, as we devote ourselves in this time wholly into your hands without any reservation. That you would not only be Lord from our lips, but Lord in our hearts and in our minds and in our bodies and in our lives. That everything that we are, everything that we do, everything that we hope in this life would be built upon you and upon our submission to your will. So as we enter into this time of invitation, help us to make the word part of our lives. Help us and convict us and compel us to the work that is before us. And if there are any within the sound of my voice that have yet to come to know you in such a way, either as Savior or as Lord, either in salvation or in sanctification, Lord, whatever the case may be. Tender yourself to their hearts.
Draw them forward so that they can experience your embrace and be certain of their eternal destiny before it is everlastingly too late. Lord, what a marvelous day it would be to be the day of someone's salvation. Open yourself to us. Meet the needs of those here. Help them stand as one family in Christ. And it's in his matchless name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share his word. And when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.